0: Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Len Fisher will join us to discuss game theory. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And your world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. To the Rocks Science Show. Well, we are all constantly faced with decisions about the best course of action to take when dealing with a group or with certain circumstances. But sometimes our individual decisions may lead to a mutually worse outcome. Well, how can we avoid such situations and how can game theory help? Well, joins us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Len Fisher. Dr. Fisher is a visiting research fellow in the physics department at the University of Bristol author of numerous books including Weighing the Soul and How to Dunk a Donut. He was also a recipient of a 1999 Ig Nobel Prize for calculating the optimal method of dunking a donut. His newest release, Rock, Paper, Scissors, Game Theory in Everyday Life, discusses the topic of game theory for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Fisher, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, very nice to talk with you. Uh, Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is a really very fascinating book, uh, Rock, Paper, Scissors, uh, but I'm curious uh, if maybe you could explain just generally what is game theory.
1: Well, game theory is about the strategies that we use and we try to do the best for ourselves in social situations. But as you very, I mean, I, you, you should be doing this interview. I should be go asking the questions. You should answer them because that was a wonderful summary right at the beginning, you know. <laughs> and it, 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 it is about optimum strategies for individuals, but especially about the traps that we walk into when we try to use those strategies. So even if the best thing for us would be to cooperate, as you said, um, there's always the temptation for one or the other to cheat, to try to do better on that. And they, and they will do better if they cheat until the other side starts to cheat as well. Then they both go down the plug hole. So there's this trap. And there's a, in social situations, there's lots and lots of books on the shelves about the psychology of how to cooperate, the psychology Of how to get on and not one of them mentions this elephant in the room this huge problem that's so big that people don't notice it was that when you act perfectly logically somehow you end up with an illogical outcome and you see it all over the place and to be honest you're seeing it at the moment in the latest Middle East conflict where the two sides the people in the Gaza Strip the people in Israel If they just cooperated, if they stopped bombing each other with rockets, if they stopped attacking each other, they'd both be better off. But each one seems to think it can do better by attacking. And that's on a huge international scale. But then you can come right down to individual scales, to how we get on in families, to how how we get on in our neighbourhoods. And it's all the same problem. This huge elephant in the room that you try to do the best for yourself, but the moment you try to do better, you end up
0: doing worse. And really the problem is, is that uh, individuals or groups of individuals are usually pursuing their own interests but not really thinking about the mutual outcome of their behavior.
1: Well, even when you think about it, it doesn't matter. It, that, that, that's why it, it, it is a philosophical paradox. And the science of this was very well worked out by John Nash, you know, from A Beautiful Mind in the 1950s. But beating the paradox is very, very difficult to achieve because what you've got to do is you have got to promise to cooperate the other person's got a promise to cooperate but that promise has to come in such a form that you know that they're not going to break it and there's all sorts of ways of doing that most of the book is about techniques for how to overcome this this terrible problem and to find ways to maintain cooperation once you've got it the sorts of promises you have to make uh, where you really have to make a commitment which is credible in other words, the other person has to be able to see that your commitment is totally credible. There, there was an awful example of that actually when Cortez um, attacked the Aztecs, where he made his commitment to attack incredible by sinking his boats behind him so he couldn't go back. And burning your boats behind you, making it obvious that you have to keep cooperating or both of you are going to go down the drain, is one of the nice ways. It used to be marriage used to be a nice way of burning your boats behind you. It's not any longer, unfortunately. <laughs> But it was a very good way of showing credible commitment.
0: Uh, well, I mean, that is, that is a big issue, and I, you devote a chapter in your book to that, is really how do you establish trust among parties? Uh, and is there really a, a good way besides burning your boats? of <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's,
1: there's, there's a number of ways. One, one of the ways, which works in a lot of situations, is to bring a third party into the equation, someone whom you both trust. When I mean, you do that, for example, when you post a bond, when you're renting a place or whatever, you post a bond with a trusted third party and you can trust the person not to run off with the bond and just leave you both flat. But also, each of you can trust that uh, the bond won't be returned unless the place is kept in good order. So there's, there's a fairly simple way. You can rely on authority, but that's not a very good way at all. Because what, ha- what often happens is the authority, and it doesn't matter whether it's a military president, whether it's just a parent, The authority becomes part of the problem rather than the key to its solution. So a lot of people say, look, if someone was just there to tell these people what to do. um, So do you see the United Nations doing a really good job of authority when it comes to stopping people from fighting? All the same problem. You can't rely on that. You have to have some other way of showing credible commitment.
0: Hmm. It is, it is true. Uh, so in your book, actually, you, you talk about many of the common dilemmas that exist, the seven deadly dilemmas, as you put it.
1: Yeah, that's, that, that's right. I, it took me some digging, I must say. I, I, I was really hoping that one of the professional game theorists who write all these books for how to, how to beat the brains out of your business opponents or how to win in military conflicts, I was hoping that one of these guys might turn around and actually write a book on how to use game theory to work out how to cooperate. And I only sat down to write this when none of these heavyweights actually did. And so I sat down and went through all of the strategies that they were suggesting, and it seemed to me that they were all in response to one of seven possible problems. I mean, one of the deadly dilemmas um, is the free rider problem. You know, when um, we all pay as a community to do something like clean up the streets or whatever, but any individual might think, well, you know, I'll just chuck my papers out, I don't have to bother. But if we all did it, we'd be back in this same problem. So that, that, that's, that's one of the dilemmas, the free rider, people who take advantage to have a ride on Social Security, whatever. whatever, whatever. And you, it turns out you've got to allow a certain amount of slack. You can't have perfection. Otherwise, you'd end up in uh, basically one of these authority states where you're just told what to do and you don't dare disobey. So you've got to allow for a bit of flexibility, but not too much. And the key to that is not too much.
0: I see, and one that's very common in international affairs is a brinkmanship problem.
1: Indeed, the, the brinkmanship where each side dares the other to go a little a little further and somehow finds itself in a position that each one is daring the other, and so, suddenly you're on the cliff edge and, uh, with, with no way back. But that, that happened uh, in the Cuba crisis, you might remember, with, between Khrushchev and Kennedy. Each side was pushing the other further. But the way they got out of it, I mean, I think fear was largely a factor, but the way that they got out of it is they found a way to negotiate so that they could both step back simultaneously. And that's, that's the key in a lot of these situations. But I'm not saying that they're all resolvable. It would be silly to say that game theory could solve everything. What it does is it lets us, lets us see what the underlying problems are and then, okay, here's the possible way to approach a solution. So in this particular case, and it's not working in the Middle East at the moment, but the negotiation to get both sides to step back rather than having this escalation, each side takes a step further. But you, you, you can have escalation in cooperation as well. You now You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. So getting that sort of escalation rather than you hit me and I'll hit you harder is one of the keys to overcoming, especially the brinkmanship problem.
0: Hmm. In the fog of war, McNamara had made the suggestion that everyone was acting, in a sense, rationally, but they were sort of driven to the circumstances just by emotions.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, emotion is certainly one of the factors, but I don't believe it's the major factor. I think very often it is this terrible trap. uh, It's known sometimes as the prisoner's dilemma, which people will have heard of, or sometimes as the tragedy of the commons. But it's always the trap that you can argue to yourself, no matter what the other person does, I'm always better off by not cooperating. And it works until the other person starts to think the same way. Uh, So I'm not sure that the emotional thing is that important. I I think the logic is important and that quite often people use the emotional bit to, say, get the population behind them. Just, you know, to, to explain when you've just killed off a few thousand Americans in war that, you know, we really had no choice but to go to war. I mean, of course you had a choice. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I think the emotion is used to drag people along with your logic, which is um, half false logic, half true logic.
0: You, you talked uh, in an essay about uh, sort of the recent uh, crisis with Bernie uh, Madoff and how others were perhaps complicit in, in, his, in his actions.
1: Yeah, indeed. My, my, my argument there... Was that, okay, Bernie Madoff is almost certainly a cheat from all the evidence that we've seen. He ran a thing called a Ponzi scheme, which is not quite the same as a pyramid scheme. It's basically that you use the capital from later investors to repay what looks like interest and dividends to earlier investors. And you can see it's got to collapse eventually. But I guess the only way that he could have got away with it, it seems to me, is if a lot of the people, these are professionals for goodness sake. They must have known something funny was going on. And my argument is that they knew that something funny was going on, but they didn't realize what the something funny was. They thought it was for their benefit. They may have thought that he was, say, um, you doing insider trading to pay these high dividends that he was offering, something like that. But the fact that they thought that meant that they kept on investing with him not realising that what he was doing was he wasn't cheating others on their behalf. He was cheating them, but they wouldn't have fall for it, fallen for it if they hadn't been cast in the same mould. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my basic argument. <laughs> I think a lot of people seem to have accepted the argument too, I might say.
0: I think there's a lot of truth in that argument, actually. <laughs> So I'm curious. I mean, there are certainly a number of these dilemmas that you talk about, but given the fact that each person's individual actions are to maximize their own benefits, how can you get beyond that and see what's best for the group?
1: Well, I I don't think it's a matter of getting beyond it. I think it's a matter of getting halfway. Mm -hmm. You can often see to yourself that, okay, I can do best here by cooperating so long as everybody else cooperates. But it's when you get the suspiciousness that maybe... They won't cooperate, therefore I shouldn't cooperate either. That's one of the times when it starts to fall apart. So I I do a fair bit of driving or being driven in places like India, and it's very different driving there from driving in the States. Because in the States, everybody cooperates. They're used to it. They know they're going to get into terrible trouble if they drive on the wrong side of the road. In India, they don't care. They don't take any notice of road signs. They just do what they want to do. And there's a huge death rate. As a result, because everyone thinks they can do better by cheating on the cooperation in the states, one of the things that holds it together is just a social, a very simple social thing like you you talked about emotion. Well, just the emotion of feeling bad about yourself if you didn't cooperate with the group. That's a very powerful emotion, and maybe we could make more of that. Do you think?
0: Oh, well, we certainly could try.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I should be interviewing you. <laughs>
0: So these are sort of uh, much more grand kind of ideas as far as game theory, but uh, the title of the book, of course, is How Game Theory Applies to Everyday Life. Uh, what sort of situations uh, does game theory apply in everyday life?
1: Oh, a huge number. Well, once you catch on to the basics, you start to see it absolutely everywhere. Uh, but one of, the, um, one of the game theorists, a man called Robert Oman, who won a Nobel Prize for his contributions to game theory, won it. Uh, on one very simple idea which had a very grand name. He called it correlated equilibrium. Well, what it really meant was organising ways so you both step together like in a three-legged race where you step together and you don't fall over rather than when you try and step separately and fall over on your face. You wouldn't think anyone would get a Nobel Prize just for suggesting that we toss a coin. But that's exactly, <laughs> what, <laughs> exactly what my wife and I do. And She's English and I'm Australian and we divide our time between England and Australia. Uh, Now, she'd obviously like to spend more time in England. I'd like to spend more time in Australia. But we tried all sorts of ways of resolving this by compromise. You know, I'd come out to Australia early. She'd stay in England a bit longer. But then we liked to be together. Then we came across this correlated equilibrium thing. And it was just so simple in our case. You simply toss a coin. If it comes down heads, I spend more of the year in England that year. comes down tails, she spends more time in Australia that year. And the thing, it sounds so babyish. But in fact, Oman proved that in all sorts of advanced situations, it is the very fairest way to resolve the situation. So there's a simple thing of game theory. In every, I mean, if you call living between two countries everyday life, but there's a very simple thing. And you can apply that coin tossing to a lot of different decisions where, where if you try to go into a complicated, complex compromise, um, you, you end up neither of you being satisfied. Because once you've accepted the principle, you're away. Very simple.
0: And isn't such a solution also relevant even to the title uh, game of the book, Rock Paper Scissors?
1: <laughs> rock, Rock, Rock Paper Scissors has a lot of lessons. I mean, the basic game is just between two players, and the best that you can do there by I mean, if you, if you can read somebody else's mind, you can always win. I, I don't know whether you came across the great auction story between um, or oh, Christie's and what's the other big big auction house? Uh, Sotheby's. Sotheby's, Christie's, and Sotheby's, where a, a Japanese entrepreneur, wanted them to sell off his collection of pa- paintings, you know, worth many millions. But he said, between Christie's and Sotheby's, you have to decide which one of you is going to get the deal. I suggest that you play rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> and so <laughs> one of them thought, well, this is random, so we might as well just play rock. And the other one, the CEO went home and asked his twin daughters, 12-year-old daughters, what would they do? And they said, uh, well, We'd we, we play paper because everybody plays rock. <laughs> and, so, and, and they did, and they won. <laughs> so, <laughs> but when you... People don't think about it, but, what, but in nature, you, you get to play rock, paper, scissors between more than two, say between more than two species. And this is called the balance of nature. What happens is, say you've got one species that's got a better strategy than another. Eventually, the first species is going to wipe out the second one completely, just displace it. But now say you've got three species. We'll call them A, B, and C since this is a science show. And let's say A can beat B and B can do better than C, but C can do better than A. Then you've got a balance. Hmm. And if you just, through our action, say, wipe out one of those species and just leave the other two, you no longer have the balance. And even though you've wiped out one, you've effectively wiped out two because the second one's going to get knocked out as well, leaving only one. And that balance, that, that you can have multi-species balance that way. That whole balance of nature is based on rock, paper, scissors played between more than two um, species, more than two people, more than two entities.
0: And, and it is fascinating, really, in a way that uh, game theory has so many applications into biology and even physics, as you mentioned in your book.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. It's, just, it's, it's there everywhere. When she, when, I, I just wanted people to catch on to it. As, as I said earlier, it's the elephant in the room. People think psychology they should be thinking, what's going on underneath that doesn't involve psychology? And it's this huge thing, so huge that people don't notice it. All I'm trying to do is to say, look, there it is. Have a look. There it is. Now you think about it. Now you get on and think in your own life, in international situations. You can. This is where the problems are really coming from. Let's have a look and see what we can do about those rather than just relying on psychology.
0: Running slightly out of time, but uh, maybe if you have just some sort of final words on game theory and its, uh, its relevance in everyday life.
1: Catching on to why cooperation collapses is the province of game theory. Catching on to what we can do about it is also the province of game theory. I don't like these words, game theory. It's not a game. and It's not just a theory. It's the practical realization of what's going on under the surface. My aim is to help people to catch on to it so they can do something about it.
0: Well, I certainly hope people will catch on to it, and I certainly hope they'll take a look at your new book, which, again, is Rock, Paper, Scissors, Game Theory in Everyday Life. Uh, Dr. Fisher, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: Oh, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you, and uh, as I say, I should have been interviewing you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you were just listening to Dr. Len Fisher discussing game theory. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokotron 5000 and the world famous question of the week. So stay tuned.
1: What oh, the games people play now? Every night and every day now. Never meaning what to say now. They're never saying what they mean. Wally, wally, away the hours in their ivory towers. Till they covered up with flowers in the back of a black limousine. Whoa. Talking about you and me and the games people play now. Well, we make one another cry. break a heart and we say goodbye. cross our hearts and we hope to die. That the other was to blame Oh, war But neither one will ever give in. So we gaze on an age again. Thinking about the things that might have been and it's a dirty rock chain Whoa,
0: We're back and we're ready to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, rock, paper, or scissors. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they would choose rock, paper, or scissors, and maybe a little reason why. Dr. Fishy, ready to play the game? I'm away. All right, here we go. Person number one, rock, paper, or scissors, it's uh, the uh, action star Mel Gibson.
1: I would have thought that even though he's a pretty bright guy, and I'm not sure that he's got an Australian background, I would have still thought he would have gone for rock.
0: (laughs) Um, All right. Well, number two is the uh, UK Prime Minister, Gordon Brown.
1: Uh, Oh, almost certainly paper. He likes to wrap things up.
0: (laughs) It wasn't he uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer at one point? So I guess He, he,
1: he was for quite some time, yeah. So he was more scissors than paper there, I must say, but <laughs> I still go for paper.
0: Okay. Uh, all right, number three is the uh, famed game theorist, John Nash.
1: Oh, He would almost certainly go for scissors because he would be aware of the statistics, and the statistics say that scissors are going to give you your best shot most of the time because right, other right. people tend to play rock more or paper more. I, I'd say he goes scissors, yeah.
0: Okay, and uh, number four, it's the uh, soccer star David Beckham.
1: David Beckham, uh, I don't think is normally regarded as a mental giant, <laughs> uh, but I would have thought he'd be trying to be cunning on this occasion, and he'd probably pay paper, uh, okay. expecting that the others would play rock. Uh,
0: all right, and finally, number five, uh, rock, paper, or scissors, it's the uh, new president of the United States, Barack Obama.
1: Ah, now that is a very, very difficult question. Not just the fact that he's a Harvard graduate, but he's a really, he thinks a lot, but he won't be aware of the statistics. My guess is that he would play paper as well, simply because he'd be expecting a lot of other people to play rock. That's thinking about what the other person's going to do and getting it right really helps. <laughs>
0: Dr. Fisher, uh, I do want to thank you uh, very much for uh, sticking around playing our game, the Grokatron 5000. And, of course, talking about your book, Rock, Paper, Scissors, Game Theory in Everyday Life. Thank you again for your time.
1: You're very, very welcome. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make
0: sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
1: If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at grok's at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling.
0: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grok's.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.